Let's go ahead and open up our Bibles today to Galatians chapter 4 again. Galatians chapter number 4. And let's go ahead and start in verse number 1 just for context. And we'll read down to verse number 16. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave. Though he is master of all, but he is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time had come... God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. But then indeed, when you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not God's. But now, after you've known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. Brethren, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. You've not injured me at all. You know that because of physical infirmity I preached the gospel to you at the first. And my trial, which is in my flesh, you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. What then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear you witness that, if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Have I therefore become your enemy now, because I tell you the truth? That's where we left off the other day. Paul had just questioned their salvation in the preceding verses, and most likely felt compelled to do so because of their apparent eagerness to place themselves back under the bondage of the law after they had been freed from it through Christ. Now, in this verse, he assumes that he had angered some of them because he said that. So he says, am I your enemy because I'm telling you the truth? I can tell you after 26 years of ministry, I'm absolutely amazed how quickly people can turn on you when you confront them with truth. Look at this current political climate. People do not want truth. They only want their version of truth. And of course, this is the result of generations of children who have been taught that there is no absolute truth. And now we're seeing the fruit. We're seeing the harvest of that kind of teaching. People get offended when you confront them with truth. Years of friendship can be dismissed over one little incident. I've met church members who are angry. Years have gone by. I ask them what they're angry about and they don't even remember. It seems like the more you do for them or the closer the relationship is, the faster and angrier they turn. You know, I've always said, You can pat them on the back 99 times, correct them once, and they'll hate you forever. How sadly true that is. What an arrogant society in which we live, in which no one can humble themselves to accept correction. But you know, Proverbs 27, 6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. If you love somebody, you're going to speak truth into their lives. You're going to risk the relationship for their benefit. That's what love is. We should count ourselves blessed when someone cares enough to get in our face.
when someone cares enough, loves us enough to speak the truth lovingly into our lives. And I think that's the key. We need to speak in love. We need to speak out of caring for the other person. But nevertheless, we do need to speak. And the one who receives that correction should respond in appreciation that someone cared for me enough to correct me, lest I should continue down that path of destruction. And then in verse number 17, Paul says, They zealously court you, but for no good. Who's they? Those who desire to put you back under bondage. They zealously court you, um, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you that you may be zealous for them. In other words, they want to put a wedge between you and us so that they can draw you to them. The legalists are making an impression on you but they don't want you to make an impression on them. In other words, their arguments are one-sided. They just want you to side with them by for the argument that they're giving and not even consider the argument that the other side is given. They zealously court you, but for no good. They want to exclude you that you may be zealous for them. In verse 18, but it is good to be zealous in a good thing, always. And not only when I'm present with you, it's not a bad thing to be affected by others. But just make sure that it is something good and not what these guys are trying to peddle off on you, is what the Apostle Paul is saying. It's great that you're zealous, but you're becoming zealous for the wrong thing. You're, be, you're, you're becoming zealous for these guys that want to place you back under bondage from which Christ has come to make you free. And he says in verse 19, my little children for whom I labor and birth again until Christ is formed in you, I would like to be present with you now and change my tone, but I have doubts about you. Once again, Paul is saying, I mean, in a very fatherly way, he says, my little children. And of course, they were the offspring of Paul's witnessing to them. They were his children in the Lord. And he says, for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. I continue to work on your behalf. Everything that Paul says that I've went through has been for you, for your salvation, for your betterment. And he says, he says, I labor for you in birth again until Christ is formed in you. I would like to be present with you and change my tone, but I can't because I'm writing this letter because I have doubts about you at the moment. Paul is once again, he's expressing doubts. And you know, in writing, you and I know this in this day of social media, it's a whole lot better to have a face-to-face -face conversation than it is over some form of social media like typing or, you know, Facebook or Twitter or even an email because you don't get the body language, you don't get the facial expressions. Sometimes you can take offense and that's not at all what the author of the message intended. And people do take offense. That's why, you know, you see this back and forth in Facebook and, th and things like that. You know, I mean, no, they would not be that bold if it was face to face. In many ways, we hide behind social media. And he, and he says in verse 21, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? Now Paul begins to make a comparison of law and grace yet again. Why so much comparison? Because they didn't get it. Even today, many still do not get it. They tell you 
they are not trusting in their good works to take them to heaven. But then you turn around and they're doing something that they think will better their chances of getting there. So they say one thing with their mouth, but they say another with their life. I've said many times, God wants your life, not just your lip. You know, it's not just what your lips say, it's what your life lives. And he says in, in verse, um, verse 22, For it is written that Abraham had two sons. Now he's going to go into yet another comparison of law and grace. The one by the bondwoman and the other by a free woman. Now if you know anything about Abraham, he had two sons. And one with Hagar and one with Sarah. And he's going to compare Hagar to the law, who he calls the bondwoman, and Sarah to Grace, who he calls the free woman. But he, in verse 23, who was of the bondwoman, was born according to the flesh. And he of the free woman through promise. This is a comparison between Ishmael, the son of Hagar, and Isaac, the son of Sarah. Of course, both sons of Abraham. Ishmael was born to Hagar and was a child of the flesh. Why? Because Abraham's faith had lapsed. God had told him and Sarah that he would indeed give them a child in their old age. However, after waiting for a while, they decided to take matters into their own hands, and Abraham went into Hagar, Sarah's handmaid, to have this promised son. That was the wrong answer because later Sarah did indeed conceive the promised one and had Isaac. Thus Ishmael is compared to the flesh and Isaac is compared to the promise. You see, Ishmael was an act of the flesh by Sarah and Abraham. And of course it reaped massive problems for them as you read the story and see. And yet Isaac was a child of the promise that God said, if you'd be patient, I will give him to you. Many do not realize today the gravity of that mistake that Abraham and Sarah made. The descendants of Ishmael are the Arabic people, and the descendants of Isaac are the Jews. They despise each other. As a matter of fact, the entire Middle East is in constant turmoil because of these two brothers. Have you watched the nightly news lately? When the Bible speaks of Ishmael, it says he will be a wild man. His hand will be against everyone and every man's hand will be against him and he will dwell in the presence of all of his brother. brethren. Another way of saying this verse is he will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everybody and everybody's hand will be against him and he will live in hostility toward his brothers. That's Genesis 16:12. Doesn't that sound exactly what's happening in the Middle East right now? Notice he will dwell in the presence of his brethren. That is a prophecy that the descendants of Ishmael will always be in the midst or dwell in the presence of their brethren, their brethren being the children of Isaac, the Jew. And so it is today. Down through the years, the children of Isaac and Ishmael have dwelt together, but they have never gotten along. The Jews and the Arabs have never gotten along together, and that is a matter of proven historical fact. In the New International Version, which it says, Genesis twenty-five eighteen, his descendants settled in the area from Havilah to Shur near the border of Egypt, and they lived in hostility toward their brothers. The New American Standard translates the last part of that verse, he settled in defiance of his relatives. Again, you need only watch the evening news to see that this is true. 
On another note, as a result of this, the Bible says in Zechariah 12, 2, Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all the people round about. This verse is being fulfilled before our very eyes. Any man who has difficulty believing the Bible should not have to look any further than the Jew. The Jew in his homeland of Jerusalem has already become a cup of trembling to the nations. The whole world thinks that if they could just bring peace to Jerusalem, to the Middle East, that the world would be a better place. Biblically speaking, that is not going to happen until King Jesus returns. God bless you guys. Hope that you have a great day. Remember, he loves you, wants the best for you, and he's working all things out for your good.